Representing the best in content creation, Bombpod Media. Hello, 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 everybody. This is Karen Wickiam, the host of Stacked, Shocking Traumas and Treatments, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to the special edition of Stat. In this episode, you'll hear an interview between me and Howard Dully. Over 20 years ago, I studied psychiatry in nursing school. I learned about lobotomy and its victims. Little did I know that I would one day be doing a podcast on this very subject. Before doing the miniseries, I contacted Howard to ask for his blessing. Over the next couple of months, we communicated and got to know each other. Howard graciously agreed to this interview. I felt like I was talking to an old friend. And as you will hear, I was greeted with a friendly giant-like hello in his deep, rich voice. Before I play this interview, I just want to say that at times the sound isn't really great because we did do the interview over Skype and sometimes the internet doesn't play nice. So I did my best to clean it up and make it sound as best as possible. So let's start the interview now. Here's Howard Dully. Hello. Hi, Howard. How are you doing? Thank you so much. Uh, it's my pleasure. I, I, you know what? I listen to your uh, podcast. They're, they're wonderful. They're great. Thank you for doing them. Oh, Howard. I mean, I, I don't even know what to say. Your story really touched me. When I was in nursing school, I was in psychology class learning about things and, and Dr. Freeman. And so this was over 20 years ago that I learned about what happened with you. And then I read your book and I kind of felt like I started to get to know you a little bit. I really thought it was really important that people heard your story. I wanted to make sure that I served you well with it. Well, thank you. Uh, I do notice I, I get a lot of mail. A lot of people, how do I say this, have expressed pretty much the same sentiments. But since I lived the life myself, it doesn't seem that, that important, I guess, to me, because it's rolled over a long period of time. But apparently it's had a lot of impact on a lot of people. I didn't realize that. And, uh, one of the problems that I do have is a lot of people ask me questions because they've had issues in their lives that are at least uh, I, I would look at as almost as bad as mine. Uh, I don't know how to respond to them because I'm not trained to do it. You know, I, I lived my life. I told my story. That's about the extent of what I can do. I mean, I can tell people how I got through certain things, but it doesn't mean it's going to work for them. I think that maybe they find a kindred spirit in you and someone to look up to because you have had such an incredible life and and you've really, uh, you far more than survived it. I'm glad I it. that for them that that's, that's what they are looking for. You know, a lot of people, uh, what do you think you'd be if you didn't have this operation? And there's no answer to that. After Howard's lobotomy, he was sent home to recover. Lou was unhappy with his results and was sent to live with his Uncle Gene. There he stayed for a year. Rodney wanted Howard to come home, so he convinced a very reluctant and angry Lou to allow him to move back. And that was only for a short period of time as well. 
I believe she agreed to it to placate Rodney, but she never intended for Howard to stay very long. Soon after his arrival home, Lou's treatment became worse than it had before his surgery. So I do know that I was probably meant, or it was meant for me to be a vegetable or worse when Lou had it done. So that's kind of the basis I go on. That's the only thing I can think of is because uh, she was not satisfied with me being in the home, no matter what I did. Didn't matter. When I came back from Uncle Gene's and stuff, I, I think I lasted three months. I had done nothing. I was uh, allowed to go bicycle riding anywhere I wanted to and went all over God's green creation on my bicycle. And I was alone. And uh, that was pretty good. Uh, but she wasn't. She wouldn't settle for that. I don't know what it was. I don't think she liked me being around the home. It kind of held her close to the home because she felt she had to watch the house because of me. I, I, I'm not sure what all the answers are. Uh, I, I've read your book. I've just tried to learn as much as I can. And one thing I try to do is get into people's heads of why they do the things they do when they harm other people. And I could not try to get inside this woman's head. It was just absolutely atrocious what she did to you. And, you know, I, I'm not going to ask you why you think <laughs> you can try to answer that, but how can you? I mean, I just, there was no, it didn't seem like there was a rhyme or reason. For some reason, she was, was horrible to you. And yeah. I don't know. I think a lot of it was I was the same age as her son, George. By three months difference. He was in August, I was in November. <clears throat> and uh, she had divorced from uh, Red Cox, who was uh, apparently a drunk. I was not aware of that as a child. There's many things we didn't know as children back then. And she had a rough marriage with him. And I think a lot of it was she was afraid if she couldn't control me or the, the kids, Red was going to come take George and Cleon from her. And I think that's, uh, that was something she couldn't bear or even think about. And you'll notice in the, I don't know if you've seen the picture of all of us standing in the pajamas or something, and my dad's looking at Lou. I'm standing in front of Lou's holding me to keep me from running off. And, uh, but she's looking at George. I've seen that picture, but now I'm going to look at it with a whole different perspective. And you notice that their uh, pajamas were new, Cleon's and George's, and ours were not. There's, there's telltale signs in all of, all of these things. One of the things that hurt me as a kid, and I know it doesn't seem like much now because I'm an adult, is uh, my brother, my stepbrother, I call him my brother. Uh, George got a new 10-speed from uh, Red, I believe, and I got a little, an old used 3-speed from my dad. Now, I didn't understand this, because to me, you know, George gets a nice, shiny 10-speed, shouldn't I get a nice, shiny 10-speed? And, you know, my dad just didn't have the money, I, I didn't realize that, because, you know, I'm just a kid growing up in Los Altos, where you're supposed to have the money, you know? 
I didn't realize we were living probably way above our means at that time. You know, my dad being a school teacher and working gazillions of jobs just to keep us there. And I kind of feel that that's what we would have broad for was to support for support and uh, you know, bother for the kids and uh, didn't really want them around if we didn't have to be, but you know, and we were just added baggage. I, I really feared for Brian after I left because uh, my brother, I mean, who's going to protect him? Do you feel that he had any kind of poor or negative treatment after you left? I don't know because he won't talk. He won't talk about it. I mean, you you have to know that there was nothing that you could do to protect him. You were the one that needed the protecting. I mean, I suppose all of you did, but you're the one that needed the protecting. Well, Brian seemed to she. He seemed to get along okay because Brian was the kind of child, I guess, that was the opposite of me. He'd do what he's told, you know, without question. And he really wasn't told to do much that I know of that he didn't want to do. You know, go play in your room. Brian was perfectly well willing to do that. But me being uh, three years older than Brian, you know, I wanted to go out and play with kids and do other things and somehow that wasn't okay. I could be wrong in, in, in this, but maybe if I'm understanding it right, it seems like you were a high en- high energy kid. Maybe if we're going to, I hate labels, I hate them, I hate them. But if we were going to put a label, let's just say maybe ADHD, if we're going to say, but high energy kid should not be equated or a child with a mind of his own and, and, and curious and, and, and fun-loving, or even, like, <laughs> kids get up to shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> that, to me, is no reason to have put you through what you have gone through. What do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I feel that could be. And, again, I, I'm not good with labels because I think that they like to just take something, slap it on, and then we'll give you pills and go away. In my case, it wasn't giving me pills. It was, you know, yeah, it was a whole different ballgame. Howard, I, I want to say that I'm sorry that you went through all of this. I think you're an incredible man, and I just want to apologize just flat across the board from me and from many different people that have contacted me about your story. They all express the same thing. Is it okay if I read you a question that one of them... No problem at all. Okay. So I think this kind of relates right to what I'm saying. It's from one of the people on the Facebook page. Her name is Jennifer Boyden. And her question was, my question for sweet Mr. Dully is how he managed to become such a kind and generous person after all he's been through and whether bitterness or regret has ever caused a heavy heart. Well, yeah, I can't really say that I wasn't angry or bitter or have had regrets. I mean, that would be normal. And, and I am somewhat normal. I think so. <laughs> uh, what I was very careful was staying away from the vengeance. I think that would have destroyed me and everything else. So, uh, I survived, I lived, take what I was dealt and move on. You know. I played a lot of mind games with myself. 
to get me where I'm at. You know, I had to realize first that Lou and my dad, and I, I frequently I call her mom, so please forgive me. It's I, I have a maternal mom, and then I have Lou. I just call her a habit that they were just human. They make mistakes just like everyone else does. I screw up like everyone else. It's just that their screw-ups happen to be with me and uh, probably other things in, the, in life. So, you know, I think nowadays if this happened, there would be some people in jail. But uh, it's not, you know, 1950s, it was okay. It was cool, I guess. Or, you know, doctors were believed, and this guy was a maniac. You know how I feel about Freeman. I won't even call him doctor. I can't bring myself to do it. I don't understand how he could do that and not be a surgeon. I, I, how do you operate on a brain and not be a surgeon, you know? Good question, and I think that's what everybody asked. It's just megalomania. I mean, theoretically, I could go in the backyard with a couple ice picks and, uh, you know, tell them. Well, Yeah. Come here, Bill. Let's see how these feel red, you know? <laughs> it's it's true. And that's that's I think part of the 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 horror of it is is that's pretty much what he did. And his son, I, I guess I heard an interview where he said he got his first ice picks out of his kitchen cabinet. And I thought yeah. what That was the interview we did, yeah. What a sicko. And then when he would talk about Oh, this germ crap. And then I think about how after your surgery, you had meningitis. Yeah. And that had that for sure was a direct link from his horrible, terrible, uh, what he was doing. I've had, I've had eye infections my whole life where they swell shut and, uh, and I have to get... Uh, drops and antibiotics and all kinds of stuff so I can see even they burn. I get those real easy, so I have to be very careful. And I, I, I attribute that to um, just destroyed my tear ducts, I think. I'm not sure. Oh, absolutely. Oh, again, I'm sorry. This is just, I can't, I can't even imagine. You're a miracle because one thing, um, I, I was watching another interview where they were talking about neuroplasticity when they did your MRI and yeah. that unfortunately, but because of your age, when you got it done, that allowed the brain to reroute itself. And that's sort of the miracle of the human body. But I also think, and maybe you can tell me if what you think about this, that you are already an intelligent man, add in your desire and will to carry on, that you are where you are today. Yeah, I, uh, the rerouting part of it, I have other pictures besides the ones I sent you or put on the web. Thank you for that. That's amazing. Those are amazing. That's my privilege again. <laughs> the, uh, I, I wonder how much rerouting, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. In other words, you know, how does the brain divide up what uses it does and how many of the pathways actually regrew and what didn't, you know? Now, I'm, I'm sure the genius path regrew. 
that, that I'm I, you know what? I like, I like that. <laughs> I'm sure that grew. It's the big one. <laughs> you had the, you had, the, you had the, uh, the genius path there. You just needed to get the connections back together. It sounds like it did. Well, one of the things that I have to be thankful for, <clears throat> excuse me, is that uh, my curiosity. I am. I figured out that because of this operation, you know. And I didn't really go around in my life saying I had this operation. Okay. It was not forefront in my mind. Because I did, didn't discuss it with other people. I really didn't want other people to know. Okay. Because you can be looked upon as a freak, et cetera, et cetera. Especially by other kids. So I, I tried to absorb things that I felt were important knowledge-wise so that when I, if I ever got to the point where this became public, such as it did now, I wouldn't have to be concerned with someone pointing at me and calling me a dummy or idiot or anything like that. And I went to college. I got an associate's degree, and that's without going to high school. In fact, not only did I get that, but the entrance test I had to take for the college, I had to correct it before I could take the test because. The questions were wrong. The syntax of the questions. In, uh, they wrote a test in basic uh, language. And the syntax of the questions were incorrect. So <laughs> I had to correct the syntax, then answer the question. Wow. So I guess after doing that, they really couldn't say you can't go to school. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Not when you're having to rewrite the test for them. <laughs> and then uh, I taught DOS class for three weeks because the instructor went overseas and couldn't get back. He was from the Middle East and he couldn't get back here. So they gave me the DOS class to, to do in all the labs. And I did that for three weeks till he got back. And it, yeah, that was fun. I failed typing. <laughs> I can't do that. Keyboarding is a terrible thing. That, That's what I do, the two-finger type. <laughs> That's pretty much where I'm at. Cut and paste the flaggy and Thank then, God for cut and paste. <laughs> failed accounting because it was supposed to be computerized accounting and it wound up being all written in pencil. I, what are we doing here? I said, I could get the computer to add. What do you want? Yeah, me you're to already do? ahead of it. Who needs that anymore? <laughs> I, told, uh, I told the instructor, I said, look, if I promise I'll never become an accountant or anything like that, would you at least give me a D so I could get out of it? <laughs> Crazy. And so far, after that, I don't think accounting was strong suit. <laughs> but I did get a degree, and I never got a job in that field at all because I guess I was too old. And we never discriminate against age, you know that. Yeah. But other than that, uh, I'm I'm trudging on. I did uh, uh, a school bus trainer and driver for 13 years. Kids will drive you up the wall. Now I know what I was like. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, when they find out that you have been lobotomized, uh, you're, they really don't want you kind of driving their kids. The, the parents don't. You know, and I, I mean, in a way, I can understand that, you know, because they don't know. They have no knowledge. And uh, the fact that I had done it for 13 years didn't mean much, but. You know, I guess the company didn't have an answer for it, and the company was kind of not really behind their drivers, you know, in my opinion. 
it, it seemed like you had found something that you really loved to do, especially when you were working with the children with disabilities. It seemed to me that you had found something that was really something that you, you loved to do and enjoyed doing, and then not being able to do that anymore. I know myself that I got a bit choked up when I heard that. I can't even imagine like how did, how that affected you. Well, it's a, just another uh, negative issue in my life that I have to overlook. I don't take it personally because they don't know, is the way I look at it. It's not my shortcomings, it's actually theirs that caused this. So they lost a good trainer, they lost a good bus driver, so who lost? They lost, you know. I mean, I lost an income, but, you know, that's that's just part of the ballgame. Anyone can lose that. The, as far as working with the special needs children, I had an understanding with them because I've been around them all my life, not just children, but adults. Being locked up in Agnews at 13 or 14, which is an adult mental asylum, you get to see a lot of things that the public doesn't get to see. That kind of messed with my mind more than most anything else, because a lot of that could have been me. I could have been the crazy guy going down the hall. And it's very hard to be normal in a crazy place. <laughs> One of my jokes was, uh, and I had some friends there that, you know, like there's people out there that were uh, out there for being alcoholic. There was different degrees of uh, mental issues, okay? And uh, one of my jokes was is that if you're not crazy when you get in here, you're sure in the hell will be crazy when you get out <laughs> Especially when you have a doctor coming in every day telling, or not every day, but once a week or once a month, whenever you saw him, that you don't need to be here, but we can't send you anywhere. So what the hell is this? <laughs> well, I think that was kind of, I think I might have made that point in, in one of the episodes. Like, you went in. Okay. When you got in trouble with the law and they gave you an ultimatum of go to prison or go back or go to Agnews that you could get yourself in there convincing them because especially since you'd been there before that I knew how to act I knew what to do but convincing them to get out was a whole other ball game yeah it was <laughs> once you're in it isn't as easy to get out that was one of my fears so it took me two years and something to get out because I was still under eight you know at then it was male for 21 I believe I, I what a position for you to be put in to how do you, prison ag news you clearly become so much more street smart which no one should have had to been at that age you had been street street smart since you were way younger than that even I figured I lived through ag news when I was early you were 14 yeah. yeah so at 17 on up I ag news is walking the park you know I had not been to prison, so I didn't know if I'd survive that. So what's the choice? The choice is something familiar. So I'll take Agnes. It's remarkable, but it kind of makes me sad and angry. You know, I hope that's okay for me to say that to you, but because, like, what a decision. I hear that. Oh, Karen, you screwed up. You can go to jail. You can go to Agnews. 
Well, I know Agnews, so I'll go there. Well, Christ, you shouldn't have known Agnews, you know? And I think well, there's so many things wrong with that. It's, I don't even know where to start. Well, you know, a couple of the issues, too, is you got to remember if you're locked up most of your life, which I was at that point, that you're familiar with it. So it's kind of not a scary thing. Almost a desirable thing. That's what they mean when they let people out of prison after 20 or 30 years. You get out, you don't realize you can open your front door and walk outside. So, you know, they feel, they, they just don't feel comfortable out in public. Now I gotta cook my own meals, I gotta do this, I gotta. I had no clue to do that. That's why they had halfway houses. You didn't have to do that. And that's as far as I got. But the halfway house did not give you guidance. They took care of you while you were there. Once you were out on the street, you had no clue to what you were to do, or and they didn't have a clue of what you were doing. They never talked to you about that. So I would go down to the Spartan Hub at 17 and drink beer with the Gypsy Jokers and think that's okay. Well, of course. Now, at 21, you, you can drink beer and anywhere you want to, but not at 17. And hanging out. Well, you're a big guy, too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And uh, hanging out with the... Jokers was probably not the smartest thing or the best thing for me to do. You know, just roll bottles, they work. You know? so, <laughs> but I, I was fortunate because I never really got heavy into drugs. You know, I never did that heroin or anything like that. I didn't want to take that chance. Yeah. Like you were saying, you weren't taught the social skills, but also life skills. That at 14, you were... In school, you were struggling, and of course you would be. You were being abused at home. You're lobotomized at 12. You're really not allowed to do anything at home because Lou is, is stifling you. And you go to a, an asylum, to a halfway house, to an asylum. Where were you supposed to learn how to be an adult? Not only that, if you stop and think, no one else mentioned anything Lou mentioned of all the places I went to. Uncle Gene didn't mention him when I lived with them for a year. The McGraws didn't mention him when I lived with them for, I don't even remember how long. Orwell never mentioned, only Lou. And my dad was never home, and none of the stuff that Lou mentioned was ever verified with my dad. Because when I talked to my dad afterwards, after I got my records, none of that ever happened, son. She, she has all the hallmarks, in, at least in my opinion, of a true sociopath, psychopath, because she could manipulate people so incredibly. And for Lou and Freeman to converge on each other, it's like you were in the middle. And Lou was in one car, one runaway car, and Freeman was in the other, and you got caught. And it just, it, it makes me sick. One of them was bad enough. Well, apparently Lou, out of Los Altos, met somebody. She had a friend up there or something, who knows. Uh, that recommended Freeman, and uh, so it went from there. And I, I think I only saw Freeman two or three times myself. My dad saw him that I know of once. You know, and, and they could do this to a boy. <laughs> but they didn't even interview you until down the road. They talked to Lou. They talked to your dad. They talked to other people. You should have been the first person to be assessed. You were the last person to be assessed. And the other thing I noticed is that <clears throat> the complaints got progressively worse. 
In other words, we started with just stupid stuff, you know, and then we wound up with some violence, which was not true, but that's the last one. It's kind of like, well, we need something violent in order to do this. So, gee, let me think what I can come up with. Somebody told me that this had happened is what her story was. And you can be, that can be put in your record or something. Most of it's immaterial. Whether I walk with a strange gate or not, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China, you know? I, I just think it takes a twisted mind for her to come up with things that you were doing when you weren't doing them. And they were so clear to me. How could anybody not see through what she was doing? Well, they didn't want to see through. That's what, that's what I think the story was. Because otherwise, Freeman would have brought Rod in, my dad, and would have gone through the allegations with him. And seeing if he verified it. Isn't that what a normal place would do? Is she the only one saying this? Because that's what the other people did, the, the ones we went to before, and couldn't get any verification. Therefore, they said that she was the problem. And Freeman, he, he's such a, I mean, this guy was chomping at the bit to lobotomize anyway. And his career was going to hell. And he was the sick was moving on to kids now and what better situation for him than to have a mother who was you know full out in here I'll help your story work and you'll help me make my story work all, all we have to do is get the dad to agree get him to sign on the dotted line and I and I'm not sure I've always said uh, you know my wife and I've discussed it Barbara the lovely Barbara Deli we've discussed it and we kind of think that Lou might have threatened to leave Rod and take everything he had. And that was one of my dad's biggest fears was to be left broken, penniless because he lived through the depression and uh, see everything he built up go to hell. That's the only thing I think of because it only took her three days from the time Freeman said we have to uh, convince Mr. Dully to, to get a signature. It only took three days to get it. So you think she threatened him? Yeah, that's the only thing I can think of. I, you know, my dad came to me with some BS about I fought for you tooth and nail. Well, that sure in the hell doesn't sound like tooth and nail, you know. And I only saw Freeman once, and I'm going to let him stick ice picks in your head. And as you can see from the pictures, it's not really an ice pick that I got. I got those. I actually held those uh, tools in my hand in uh, Washington D.C. Yeah. How did that make you feel, Howard? Uh, took the power away, really. Uh, wow. But I, it, it made me it made me a little nervous at first. Fortunately, I had to wear rubber gloves in order to hold them. They give you gloves. To, but the uh, original ice pick that I held, that we have a picture of, that was the one out of his drawer that I held. It's also in Washington. Uh, it was a solid metal ice pick. It was not the wooden metal one that you see. It was solid metal, uh, old time ice pick. I thought it was that was fascinating to me. Uh, it just it was beyond me how anyone could even imagine or dream that this is going to come out good somehow. Sticking ice picks in someone's brain, twirling them around, which is an exact science, I'm sure. <laughs> so. Well, I, I know that, um, again, through a lot of research I've done, that 
in very rare circumstances, they'll do what is considered a lobotomy. It's two neurosurgeons with the brain under full imaging, complete, like it is a major, major surgery to do this. And this man was going in there willy nilly. And I'm sorry, I don't mean any disrespect when I say that it's, it's towards how flagrant, how criminal what he did. It's amazing that you're alive and again, a miracle, but not everybody that he didn't kill everybody. When I've posted some pictures up with the podcast showing the picture of you as a child with the ice picks, his before, during, and after pictures, there was times that it, it was difficult decision for me to post them because, in one sense, I don't I don't want to um, uh, make it look like I'm sensationalizing it, and that yet in another sense, I think people need to know about what happened. How does it make you feel to see those pictures or that they're they're posted? so much well i was going to use the one with the uh uh, ice picks or the tools in my eyes i wanted to use that for the book cover and uh random house said absolutely not (laughs) it would scare the hell out of everybody (laughs) sounds like a winner to me (laughs) just read the book cover isn't that enough (laughs) uh the uh the pictures don't bother me because they're the truth. You know, uh, there's no blood in them, so they're not really gory. You could actually just think that they're setting something on my eyes without actually penetrating if you wanted to. You know, you could look at it that way because there's no blood. You don't see the actual penetration. So, you know, all that they did was because I actually held them and know how long the tools were when they, when I had them. So, I have seen pictures before, and I don't know where they are, that of me after the operation where I looked like I was just beat with a baseball bat. I talked to Lichtenstein, which was in the room with Freeman. He's the one that took the picture. Those are Freeman's actual arms holding the ice picks in the picture. And he didn't agree with Freeman's method, I guess is what they like to call it. Because what he, I guess what he says was, uh, but because of his level of. Like he was in an internship or something? Yeah, he was. Yeah. So he didn't get to, uh, to voice his opinion, I guess. He was just there. I should have known something was going on when they x rayed my head. (laughs) What are you looking for? (laughs) Yes, I do have a brain in there. Well, I mean, uh, you were a kid, though. I mean, I, I saw it. it am, I, am I right or wrong in saying that it was almost a vacation for you to get out of that house? and Any time away from Lou was a vacation. Yeah. When I rode my bicycle, it was a vacation. So I, Lou wasn't with me, you know. And I rode in places I knew Lou wouldn't go. Or anyone else I knew. Up in the hills and stuff behind Los Alpes. Because I never got in trouble when I was away. I could drive down the bi- the driveway with my bicycle and get in trouble with Lou. There was no problem at all getting in trouble with her. She just she was angry. She was an angry person, you know. Uh, I didn't realize how well off we were in Los Altos. There were too few people in Howard's life that showed him any affection. 
His grandmothers loved him, but they showed it in very different ways. Howard explains the relationships with his grandmothers and other members outside the Dully family household. I didn't like, uh, you know, Grandma Boo in the, uh, uh, in the book. Her real name is Beulah. We couldn't say Beulah. We called her Boo. Okay? Although I was told she loved me to death. But it didn't seem that way. Uh, Daisy I loved. The only one that actually wanted to protect me. But because of what happened with Dad and June, my maternal mom, and Daisy and Gordon, they were pushed away. My dad had the power to do that as being my uh, my guardian, my legal guardian, to keep them away from Uncle Gordon was gay. My dad used that in our minds as kids to, for why we weren't to hang around him. Okay. And although he never, there was never any Kind of impropriety with Uncle Gordon whatsoever. I want that understood. Daisy and all that. They wanted to get me away from Rod because Rod had me with Lou and they knew what Lou was doing. You know, and that was actually the only thing. And it was a very tight family. They had Uncle Hugh and uh, other people in the family that were very close. And uh, there was no ill thing that was meant for me at all. It was, uh, in fact, they would have took Brian, too. Cleon and I have never talked because he believes what his mom did was okay. What, what about with Kirk? Did you develop any kind of um, a relationship at all with him, or was that just completely ripped away from you? Kirk was too young when I left. So now as adults, we have kind of the last name compatibility, but no emotional bonding. Is there anything in my podcast that you want to add or maybe clarify that I missed or that I maybe misspoke? Well, there's something that you said, and I don't know if you said it again right now, more in attitude or depth that I was afraid to say that I wanted to say. Okay? Uh, when I wrote the book, I don't know if it came across this way, I didn't want to make my dad wrong. I had my dad on a pedestal. That was who I was going to emulate my whole life. So it became a big deal for me to see the truth about my father. That he wasn't the Superman I thought he was. Things like that. Views of blue that I, I view that way but just couldn't say. Because, you know, I, I just, you know, I figured that I won. Lou's dead, I'm alive, I won. That's the way I look at it. <laughs> it works for me. So, uh, and I wonder if she lived a miserable life or not. If she was really that unhappy. She was clearly a sick woman. She didn't, because she must have been a very unhappy inside her mind. That's the only thing I'm thinking. Same with Freeman. I don't know if he was, I think he was, he took me to Langley Porter, and that's where they threw the cards on the stage and all that. And I contacted Langley Porter because I wanted to go up there, and they don't seem to want to have anything to do with me. That seems to be the reaction I get 
they would rather I just go away. Most of the uh, psychiatrists, because I guess I'm not good for the, <laughs> their industry. <laughs> They're afraid of me or whatever. That makes no sense to me because you are, and I hope you understand when I say this, but you're a study in the miracle of the brain. Not a man that I think should be studied unless that's something that you wanted to explore on your own. But here is a person that has not only survived but thrived and got a degree, got married to a lovely lady, raised kids, just, you know, wrote a book <laughs> and survived that horrible abuse. I would think I'd, I'd want to know more about you. I mean, I do, and I'm in the medical profession. I don't understand how anybody else wouldn't want to know. I think some of it is because it is their profession. That period of time is looked down upon for that. And they don't want to re-stir the, the mix. You know, in other words, if I can do no wrong, then people that will come to me will look at me again as being you know, the God that I am knowing that people are human and people screw up. Psychiatry still, to this day, has a bad reputation. Now, I think that it has its role. People, I mean, I've disclosed to you that, I mean, I have PTSD. And I know that some of the help that I've gotten has helped me a long way. So I do believe that there's a place. But I'm also a well-informed person. I have the education. I, I advocate for myself. But... Kids were horribly treated. You're the example of it back in the day. And the way that children are being treated now, what is what is your opinion on that? Uh, I have concerns that they're over-medicated. Uh, I think that it's too easy to start, like you say, put labels on them, boom, boom, boom. And you have people that are making decisions that are not qualified. Not the psychiatrist so much, but you're asking a school teacher to make a psychiatric evaluation of a kid. That's not a psychiatrist. Yep. How are they making any evaluation? Well, that's the thing we're, we're saying. Like, it, has it changed? Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, 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 I don't know if it has. I mean, that now it's chemicals they're using now. Yeah, it's, uh, it can be stopped. Now, whether there's any lasting effects or not, I'm not sure of, but it can be stopped. With mine, once you cut the tissue, you aren't stopping anything. It's done. You know, it's over. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right about that. Sorry, in no way was I trying to diminish that, but no, you're, you're, you're right. But I have done some reading on the types of drugs, and they're getting, these drugs are, in, are, are very complicated, mind Ritalin is, is horrible, but we're also talking like serotonin reuptake. We're talking antidepressants, antipsychotics. And the studies are showing now that they are permanently altering these children's brains. And again, for the miracle of neuroplasticity and stuff, if they are able to finally get the help they need and not... Look, some kids do need the medication, but how many do? I don't think anywhere near of... of, of of what and do and to the extent that they're giving them maybe uh you know i was offered look at all the things the alternatives i could have had instead of a lobotomy and each one of them my dad said no 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 why 
Wouldn't that have been better than cutting my brain up? No. But it was because of the pride. We don't want my son labeled mentally deficient. And after talking to me, do you think there's any way in God's green creation I'd be mentally deficient? Not not a no. chance. Even, even with a lobotomy. No. Again, it shows how remarkable you are because with a lobotomy, you're an amazing person and intelligent, just all around. And it just speaks volumes of that. I, I, we, we, we can't go back and say, what if? It's hard not to. But, I mean, the man that you are now speaks volumes of your tenacity, your strength, your intelligence, your heart. One thing I hear from you is you're just so, your attitude is incredible. You're, you, you say, well, it's their loss or they don't know better. Where is, is their brain at? To have that attitude towards people that have hurt you so badly is, is remarkable. But it's okay not to forgive. Do you feel that you've forgiven them? Or have you ever gotten an apology at all? Has, has anyone ever reached out? No, my dad would say, for what? It's what he said, I think, in one of the interviews. And then he said, he wouldn't even hug me for the camera in one of the interviews. I listened to the NPR interview, and it broke my heart. Because you were so honest. You wore your heart on, the, on your sleeve. You were very courageous. You, you just said what you needed to say. And I was, I really just wanted to hear him reciprocate and... I'm sorry that that didn't happen, Howard. Do you remember that part in the interview where the lady said, do you know how many people are you champions, etc.? New York used to play that for me in the earphones. I was in Santa Cruz when I did the uh, recordings for those uh, in a station. And New York would have them play that part. So as you can see, I'm getting teared down. And that's what happened. So if they wanted me to choke up on something, they'd play that for me and then have me read the line. And so, and they didn't write the lines. I mean, that I said that we, we talked and that's where the lines came from. But if they wanted emotion in that line, because really I am... In normal talking, when we talk every day, I'm not this emotional. For some reason, when I get on this subject, or in areas of this subject, I get emotional. And I don't know why, because I don't sit there and think about any particular thing that makes me that emotional. It just is. Did, do you think, did that bother you that they would do that to elicit emotion from you? Do you feel like that, they, like that you were a bit manipulated with that, or just as a reaction that you have because... That's just how you feel. I think that there are some things that I don't sound emotional about, that I am, am emotional about, or very emotional about, or should be emotional about, that doesn't come across that way. So it's like watching an actor or an actress that is playing a very sad scene, but they're doing it without any emotion. Well, you can't have that. You know, I mean, that just doesn't mean they're not emotional about it or shouldn't be emotional about it. It just means it doesn't come across that way. 
So if I got a motion in that part of the thing when she was playing that, and you get cried out, so to speak, when you go to the next part, your emotion, you're, you're dampered because you're just kind of drained. I used to get headaches from the, I bet. from the interviews I did. Didn't ha Nothing happened. I could travel all over the U.S. to do interviews and eat all the nice food. It was good food. I want to do another movie. <laughs> good. And I didn't, no problems at all, no physical or any other than flying. not a flyer. But when I do an interview, the strain, the stress of the emotion gave me a headache. Well, you can't bring across in the story a headache. There's no way of anyone knowing that it's that stressful, that emotional. So you have to find what turns on that emotion. Because we talk about my emotions when I have it. Does this, how does this affect you? Well, you know, it's, I'm very upset about it. I'm very, like when I say that uh, my family abandoned me, doesn't sound too bad, does it? But emotionally, it's very distressful. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I just, I, because I, I don't want people to really think that we faked anything, because we didn't. It wasn't set up to fake anything, to fool them. You're so genuine, and you're just so courageous with it. I, I, I don't think that's possible for it to come across that way. Because you, you're so, you're articulate, and you speak your truth, and your emotion comes in when your emotion comes in. But you'd have to know me, know certain things. Yeah. Most of the people that heard the radio piece don't know. So we had to have certain things come in when it... The other thing that I wanted to come across was that people... I didn't want people to think I was an angel as a kid. I wasn't the nice little kid that went around and got beat with a baseball bat or anything like that. I had my issues. I did things. I took candy. Why was I a thief? I could take the pins out of the candy door. It was a whole closet, man. <laughs> Open that, get the candy. They never figured out how the candy get disappeared, but I could. <laughs> I had to tell my dad that. <laughs> you know, all that candy. So you would take the whole door off, get the candy, and put the door back on? Yeah, because I had the door close to the paddle off. Oh. I took pins out of the door, opened the door from that side, then I had to, and they were in the house when I did it. Oh man, that's awesome. I don't know why I never got caught, but I never did. Well, who does that? That's pretty brilliant. It was a beautiful house. Absolutely gorgeous house. You know, and I go back there every once in a while. Some of the interviews, uh, like the one on Blood and Guts, was done that oak tree behind me that's at the house the front of the house and you can see my bedroom window george's bedroom window behind well that was owned by the winchesters wasn't it the that house yeah uh it was uh, uh sarah winchester's sister it's quite the place to grow up in it, it must have been a huge difference for you going from the smaller home it would have been <laughs> it wasn't but it would have been it could have uh, yeah, it would have been wonderful if uh, the right people were involved emotionally and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I used to, you know, I didn't realize that I, I was lost in either TV or in my room. And if I was in my room, I was away from Lou, so life was good. 
I was in TV. I loved TV, but Lou would come out and wait till something's on I liked and come in and switch it to something I didn't like. And same with Dad. But they made it seem like I was trying to control the whole house, and that wasn't the truth. They'd sit there and switch it to news and then go back into the kitchen. So they were just playing head games with you? Yeah. I, it seemed like they were trying to antagonize me. My dad would actually sit down one, but Lou would switch it and just go back into the kitchen which was two rooms away. Just such a vindictive person. I I try so hard not to go on my little rants on my podcast, but it, it's hard. And, you know, I think I, I, I just have to maybe, I, I just got to say how I feel in a sense. I want it to be genuine. The one thing I worried about after the fact was that I said some pretty negative stuff about your dad. And I thought, you know what? Did I have the right to do that? That was that fair and part of me wishes i hadn't but it's your opinion you have a right to your opinion and you know what i've had other people express the same opinion i had a lady post that she wanted to chase Lou down with her like herself you know so what do you say to someone like that <laughs> i mean that isn't what i wanted to do but <laughs> what can you say they have a right to that opinion, but uh, I, it was funny. I, and, you know, the, the other thing that hurts, another thing, you know, you, there are little things that hurt you. Uh, my dad said he finally left Lou because she got rid of his dog. Not because she lobotomized his son, but got rid of his dog. And I said, really? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, you know, Howard. That's, I, that's awful. And I'm the one they lobotomize. You know, I'm the one that's distant. I'm the one that's weird. You know, and I, I think I was brought up with, you know, blood is thicker than water attitude. And I lived to find out that's not necessarily true. For some reason, it didn't apply to you. And who will ever figure that out? It's, there's times when I was doing all my reading and stuff, I just wanted to reach through the pages and grab you and say, I'll take them. <laughs> You know, um, it's... The lady at Agnews that wanted to dock me and take me home and my dad wouldn't let her. But what about the McGraws? Or, you know, they... I know that there was... that they were religious, but I can't imagine having... unless they were, you know, absolute religious, over-the-top freaks about it, what is better, lobotomizing your child or having them live in a religious household? That I did not understand. I think what... a couple problems with the McGraws. The good thing was they were going to send me to a school called Valley Christian, which is now a huge school. It started out in a little room. In fact, where I uh, was training uh, school bus drivers at is where Valley Christian School started. They used to take their son all the way from Mountain View, their two sons, to San Jose to go to Valley Christian School and then pick them up. That's what we did. Because I didn't go to school. I stayed at home and had to put up with Mrs. McGraw and all the kids she took care of and all that. And the kids were much younger than me, so it was really very boring. I couldn't wait for Danny and Tommy to get home. I used to get Danny in trouble. <laughs> but I think she started trying to control when my dad could see me or something like that. And I think that's what he objected. From my perspective, which, again, it, 
could be completely wrong, but there were these seemed these opportunities where you could have gone elsewhere. And with, with your your grandma Daisy, for instance, from my understanding, I think it was wrong that she kept your dad away from your mom when she was passing. No one's I don't think is going to say that that was okay. But in the long run, if if yeah. if, if you could have gone with them. I don't know that that would have again you can't say what if but wouldn't that have if if you were a problem in quote out of quote wouldn't that have solved the problem if you could just let bygones be bygones well the other thing that's funny if you notice anybody else I was with except maybe Jean and Christine which are they're, they're, they were married it's not, not two separate families it's one family one of the McGraws wanted me, uh, Mrs. Laws, the lady at Agnews, wanted me, uh, uh, Evelyn Orvalin Black wanted me. Everyone else, the Dully family, did. So if I went to Uncle Gene's, and you know, Uncle Gene and I, I loved Uncle Gene. Out of all the Dullys, Uncle Gene and Uncle Kenny were my, my favorites. Uh, Uncle Gene first, Uncle Kenny second, but... They were still my favorite. I don't know if he felt the same way. According to Freeman, he didn't. But, you know, Freeman makes stories. Oh, you can't trust a thing that man said, I don't think. <laughs> but it seems the wives of the men in the Dully family don't like me. I don't know why that was. But they didn't like me. Christine didn't like me. And Lou didn't like me. And I don't know about Twyla. They were religious. Kenny and Twyla were religious. Again, my dad would not be. I don't know what his thing was with religion. We just, you know, we went to church on Easter. That was okay, but anything else was not a big deal. Okay. So there seemed to be a lot of religious people around us, but no, uh, none of it entered our family. There's maybe there's something something to that, but you know, I never. Yeah, I'm not saying. Whether it's right or wrong, but I just I just find it amusing, that, you know. And everyone else seemed to accept. Howard, you know what? It's it's I, I it's so amazing talking to you. You're so easy to talk to. Well, I, I like thank you for 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 talking. Can we talk again? Just like yeah, no problem. No. Problem. I like to just shoot you know shoot the poop and every you know if, if that's okay with you. Yeah, I have no issue with it at all. I enjoy. Uh, listen to your podcast i want to continue to listen howard thank you it's it's been an honor talking to you and i i look forward to getting to, getting to know you a little bit more if that's okay okay all right i thank you much you take care unfortunately we had to end the interview pretty abruptly there because the internet skype started to crack up a little bit so didn't really get to say a proper goodbye but uh there it is there's mr dully Amazing guy. What more is there to say? You've listened to a story through my podcast. Now you've heard him speak his truth and impart his wisdom. I see Howard as a living legend, one of our everyday heroes that we don't hear near enough about. In this world full of madness, Howard was a victim and then a victor who championed for those who couldn't. I've gone through a whole gamut of emotions while telling his story. I felt sadness and anger. I wish I could have lashed out at the people who heard him and felt frustration that I would never be able to. 
I think that they all got off too easy. I think Howard teaches us all an important lesson. That revenge or vengeance doesn't fix the problem. It doesn't undo damage. It causes further harm to yourself. Howard teaches that working on your own self is how you conquer the monsters. Taking all that negative energy and applying it to improving yourself helps heal the wounds. Harnessing that negative energy and turning it into positive energy also helps everyone around you. Look at the impact Howard made on the people in his lives by living the life in his terms with optimism, love, and empathy. People like Barbara's sister, Linda, the children that he drove to school with so much care, Barbara, his children, and all the other people that he spoke for that were harmed by Freeman. He may have not set out to do so, but he spoke the truth for those that couldn't and teach us not to give up. Mental health stigma and patient abuse still exist. And Howard keeps that dialogue going. Let's fight for change. Let's love and support one another. Let's make these occurrences a thing of the past. If you need help, reach out. More of us care than don't. More of us understand than not. You will be heard. Never give up. I've decided not to do another suture room this week because I wanted this interview to stand alone. I promise to make up for it. I've got some great ideas coming up to mix things up a little bit that I'm sure you will enjoy. I want to thank everyone who supported me on Patreon and iTunes this week. I'll give all the shout outs on the next episode. I also think that I'm overdue for a little rap, if you know what I mean. So if you don't mind heading over to iTunes and leaving me a review, it helps the show become more visible and easier for people to find it. So I'd really appreciate it. Please and thank you. Until next time, you've been listening to STAT, Shocking Traumas and Treatments, where sometimes it's the cure that kills you. Ha 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 ha.